Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page. You can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or on Spotify or pretty much anywhere, (laughs) Uh, including on the web at evidencebasederrata.com. So I want to start out tonight with some shows from last week that are from stories from last week that I didn't get a chance to talk about because as you uh, probably know, I was busy talking about how much I love slime molds. (laughs) So we're going to start out talking about clams. And so researchers studying butter clams in the Salish Sea in British Columbia have discovered an important link between clams and humans, other than the fact that we enjoy eating them, uh, though that is part of it. (laughs) And so starting with populations of the tasty mollusks from around 11,500 years ago, uh, and that's before permanent human settlement of the area, the clams are relatively small, about 80% of the size of today's butter clams. But as sea levels stabilized and glaciers receded after the last ice age, uh, it left rocky seafloors, and those began to get bigger, and uh, they lived longer, having that more ideal uh, situation. By um, 10,900 to 9,500 years ago, uh, they were much bigger. And so human clam harvesters arrived on the scene as regular inhabitants around 9,000 years ago. And around 5,500 years ago, life got even better for the clams. So it turns out that First Nations people began to create clam gardens, uh, according to research published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And of course, we just talked a few weeks ago about the long history of fish farming, so it shouldn't be too surprising to find out about uh, gardening with mollusks. Now, the gardens were created using walled-off terraces, which few non-human predators like fish or crabs could enter, but with plenty of phytoplankton and other delicious foods for the mollusks, which allowed the clams to grow faster. And so despite constant harvesting, they actually continued to thrive. When Europeans arrived on the scene, the gardens were mostly forgotten, Uh, due to many factors, as you might imagine, um, including a lot of the first peoples being displaced and uh, unfortunately being extinguished. And so that left the the mollusks back to their own uh, devices. And so now with this lack of cultivation, along with warming oceans and an influx of fine-grained sand, uh, covering the once rocky seafloor, which is due to the enormous amount of industrial logging that has happened in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, this has caused a uh, fairly predictable decline in these bivalves. 
However, there is a silver lining to this story. Many indigenous communities in the Pacific Northwest are now working on restoring those original clam gardens, and conservationists are also working towards finding ways to install better aquaculture management because you know, these are absolutely positively something that is good, not only for people to be able to eat, but it's good for that environment. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's an indicator species in some respects. So if you're losing something that's been thriving there for a long time, because of these changes to the, um, to the waters from, uh, you know, this pollution basically from uh, logging. It's not pollution in the sense of chemicals necessarily, but it's pollution in the sense that you are getting all of this runoff of soil that once would have been retained on the land. And so sometimes it's not just about the most basic kind of pollution where it's, you know, a chemical or something like that being put into the water or plastics. Sometimes it can be something as seemingly innocuous as just fine-grained sands. And so if you have a species that doesn't like those conditions and you suddenly fill them with that, um, you know, there's, that's also happened in coral reefs as well, where um, sand ends up covering the coral reefs and then they cannot do, um, they can't function in the way that they're meant to. And so it's really sometimes a problem, even when you're not dealing with anything that seems to be actually noxious as a pollutant. And so it would be a real shame to lose such a great natural resource. Uh, and so hopefully we will be able to bring them back and uh, we will not have to chalk up yet another species to uh, extinction via human degradation of the environment. So hopefully they will be uh, coming back and there will be lovely gardens of uh, bivalves ready to be harvested very soon. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about bats for a minute. In this case, Egyptian fruit bats. Now, I know some people don't like bats. Um, and of course, as mammals, they can carry rabies, which is, of course, why a lot of people don't like them. But I have to say, I actually think they're very adorable. Um, if you actually see pictures of them um, when they're in, uh, you know, someone's hand or something like that, uh, there's a great uh, little um, gif of a bat unfurling its um, wings and of course it's been flipped upside down so it looks like it's standing on its toes rather than being than hanging from its toes and it looks like it's doing a pirouette and striking a pose and it's very adorable um, and they are an extremely important member of the ecosystem uh, lots of them are actually insectivores that eat amongst other things mosquitoes and others like a lot of the fruit bats are important pollinators. So they are definitely one of those animals that while occasionally they uh, might do a little bit of damage, that they might um, occasionally get into your house and cause you to have a panic attack a little bit, um, they are very important members of our ecosystem. 
And so we definitely want to be making sure that we keep them happy and healthy. And uh, that's been pretty hard lately. Uh, We're not going to talk about that tonight, but there's been a real, um, just a huge problem in North America, especially with bats having this fungal disease that has been um, really hurting their populations. But I think that at this point, um, we've definitely gotten to the point where we're getting some treatments out there to them. But again, for tonight, we're going to talk about uh, Egyptian fruit bats. And so getting back to those friendly fruit bats, a machine learning algorithm was programmed to learn what exactly they were saying when they were vocalizing. It turns out that they are actually specifically talking to one another and, well, doing a lot of complaining. (laughs) So neuroecologist Yossi Yovel and his colleagues from uh, Tel Aviv University recorded a group of Egyptian fruit bats, Rusetus aegypticus, for 75 days. They then used an algorithm originally designed to detect human voices and fed 15,000 calls into the program. They then watched videos of the bats to see if they could match certain calls to certain activities. What they found was that overall, it seemed that the calls were not just random. They were able to classify 60% of the calls into one of four categories. One type indicated they were squabbling over food. Another showed fighting over positions within sleeping clusters. A third was males making unwanted advances on females. And a fourth was bats telling other bats to respect their personal space. (laughs) And yes, that is a bit of anthropomorphizing, but it was also, you know, in, in the descriptions, not necessarily in the actual way in which it seemed that they were using these as communication tools. And so what was really interesting, though, is that they even seemed to make slightly different versions of calls when interacting with different individuals, much the same way humans use different tones of voice with different people. Now, only a handful of other species, such as dolphins, are known to address others with individual calls. Um, So, for instance, we actually do know that dolphins have specific quote-unquote names. Each dolphin has its own particular name. Um, And they also do interact with different um, members of the pod differently, depending on sort of what role they play within the pod. We have shown that a big bulk of bat vocalizations that previously were thought to all mean the same thing, something like, get out of here, actually contain a lot of information, Yovel tells Nicola Davis at the garden, at the Guardian, excuse me. So the next step for them is to try to see if the bats are born knowing this language or if they learn it over time within the colony. They also want to know if they use this language outside of the roost. Now for this, they'll need to attach microphones to some bats and release them back into the wild. And again, this may seem overly anthropomorphic, uh, but it's becoming increasingly clear that a lot of animals have much more complex social behaviors than was once believed. And so that is a big thing that we have to keep reminding ourselves 
that we are finding more and more that these animals are out there and they have much more complex um, understandings and much more complex cultural uh, references, even in some respects, than we once believed. Okay, so let's move on now and uh, switch gears. We're going to switch from uh, sort of biology and squishy sciences. We're going to go over to the hard sciences for a while. And uh, we're going to start out with some physics that is not completely theoretical for once. <laughs> uh, we've been talking about some theoretical physics uh, recently. And, you know, there's always a moment where you think, is this even real? I don't know. <laughs> um, but this is actually some uh, actual um, applied physics. So researchers at IBM, the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, the Korea Research Institute of Chemical Technology, and Duke University have devised a way to solve a problem with the Hall effect. And so back in 1879, physicist Edwin Hall discovered that electrical currents bend when placed in a magnetic field. This produces a voltage and a new electric field perpendicular to the electrical current. This became known as the Hall effect, and researchers use it to study the properties of materials like semiconductors. But up until now, there has been a problem with this. The effect prevented scientists from making certain measurements simultaneously. So, of course, this is a notorious part of physics, um, especially when you get into quantum physics, where um, there's all sorts of fraughtness when it comes to measurement. Um, and so being able to successfully measure things is often very hard in physics. And so the team of researchers has devised a one-shot technique to extract the information called the Carrier Resolve Photo Hall Measurement Technique. And so they're hoping it will be useful in developing next-generation solar cells and other metamaterials. This could create an exciting advance to understand semiconductors in greater detail, Oki Gunawan, the study's first author and a researcher at the IBM T.J. Watson Research Center, noted, we hope it will bring advances in the near future. Now, charge carriers are the discrete units in which electrical charges move through semiconductors. They are negatively charged electrons and positively charged holes electron voids in the material that can move the same way that the electrons can. Scientists use the Hall effect to figure out the properties of the charge carriers in materials, such as how fast they move and how densely packed they are. In more recent research, they have used the Hall effect to understand the effects of light on the material that they were studying because light striking certain materials produces those same electrons and holes. The problem is, is that there are two kinds of charge carriers, majority and minority. Until now, the Hall effect could only measure the majority carrier charge, charge carriers, excuse me. So the measurement could only tell you how many holes or how many electrons there were, depending on which was in the majority. If there were more holes, the number of holes would be reported without any information about the number of electrons and vice versa. 
And so according to the paper published in the journal Nature, Gunawan used a thought experiment first, which imagined two systems, each with the same majority charge carrier at the same density and traveling at the same speed, but with different minority charge carrier speeds. When you add more energy from light pulses, the two materials would behave slightly differently due to the effects of the minority charge carriers. This theoretical setup allowed the team to develop and refine an equation that describes both the minority and majority charge carriers at the same time. Now, there are still limitations uh, with the need to reduce noise for materials that only weakly experience the Hall effect. Um, So in this case, noise means kind of the randomness of the data. So um, when you are testing things, you can get sort of random blips, and that's how people use the term noise in this case. Um, And so there are also other obstacles. But on the other hand, uh, not having sufficient technology at present to test materials with higher charge carrier densities, because they actually require high energy lasers, which would end up melting the materials. So there's not there are still some limitations here. Um, And so the noise problem uh, can be helped. And so a system has been developed by IBM called a parallel dipole line. This is a pair of cylindrical magnets that together form a kind of magnetic field trap. When they added two samples, one silicon and another a light-sensitive material called a perovskite into the trap, they were able to then use the equation to extract the information on both the majority and minority charge carriers. Now again, not only is this interesting for potentially new materials, It's also just a breakthrough for basic fundamental physics, allowing researchers to access information that was once thought impossible to capture, which is a big deal um, because, as I have mentioned uh, several times, measurement in physics can be very fraught. (laughs) And so it can often be very hard to actually measure things and be confident of those measurements. And I also just like the fact that this started out with a thought experiment. Um, I like when somebody sort of thinks about a problem and then finds this amazing solution to it. And so I definitely think that that's very cool. And hopefully we'll get better semiconductors and better semiconductors could lead to a whole host of um, sort of next generation uh, technologies that we all thought we would get, you know, 40 years ago (laughs) and haven't yet. Um, So yeah, Um, it's always interesting to think about where you thought you would be when you grew up as far as technology and how in some respects, like the technology I thought that I would grow up to have, I absolutely do have a hundred percent. Like, you know, the fact that I have a phone that is basically, uh, equivalent to what a supercomputer was when I was uh, a young child is just crazy. Um, (laughs) And it's, you know, it sits in my pocket and I can access the internet, which is basically, uh, for better or worse, has pretty much all of human knowledge on it. Um, (laughs) Some of that knowledge isn't great knowledge, but, you know, again, for better or for worse, it's still amazing. 
And, um, you know, there are some places where I think obviously we are, we continue to not do a great job, um, especially in environmental uh, degradation and keeping our environment up to uh, the way in which it really should be maintained. But hopefully, hopefully, uh, we're going to start working on that more. Okay, so let us now get back to talking about stories and not just thinking about the future we wish we had. Um, so last week, I made a sort of uh, short, impassioned speech about how I didn't want to talk about the Nobels. Uh, and that remains largely true. But um, this new, this next story does mention a Nobel uh, laureate, but uh, from the early 20th century, so it doesn't count. <laughs> um, and so what it reveals is that the work by this early 20th century Nobel laureate was actually extremely uh, prescient. And so uh, publishing in the journal Nature, researchers from Imperial College London and the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organization, or ANSTO, have reported a transitional metal co complex with a geometric arrangement of atoms that was predicted in 1893 by the 1913 Nobel Prize winner Alfred Werner. This is an important development in the field of inorganic chemistry, which could lead to advances in um, catalysis, synthesis, material sciences, photophysics, and bio-inorganic chemistry. <laughs> now, this is a little bit hard to explain, and I've tried to be as, um, I've tried to explain it in as small terms as possible. Um, so I do uh, apologize if you kind of drone out and lose me on this one, but it is a really important find, so I thought I should talk about it. So Warner developed his theories of these geometries before even the advent of X-ray diffraction um, or any kind of similar tool for observing the actual geometry of such materials. When I say geometry, I mean the arrangement of how the atoms are, um, are how they are arranged in order to create the structure of the material. So... Um, if you think about um, something like a diamond, diamonds have very regular structures. Um, they have sort of carbons that are in basically uh, cubes. They basically have carbon atoms that are formed in cubes, and that's how you get a diamond. So that's the that's the geography of the, or sorry, the geometry of the structure is that uh, cube shape. And so he was able to determine this geometry solely from the observable properties of the materials themselves. And so he established the existence of various possible isomers for six coordination and three possible geometries. These were trigonal prismatic in which the, substu in which the substituents lie on two parallel triangles either side of the metal atom octahedral, where the parallel triangles don't overlap, the dominant geometry of these kinds of metals, and a third possibility identified, which was a hexagonal planar geometry. And so, again, these late 18th century observations predated X-ray diffraction studies 
by 20 years. And Werner received the Nobel Prize for his studies the year after uh, Laé received the Nobel Prize for his observation on the diffraction of X-rays by crystals, <laughs> uh, notes Ansto co-author Dr. Allison Edwards. Now, the researchers believe that their findings have the potential for new design principles for transitional metal complexes, which will have implications across the fields of both physics and biological sciences. Data from the Koala Lau diffractometer at ANSTO has verified the hexagonal pyramidal coordination environment of a seven-coordinated nickel complex, which is closely related to the hexagonal planar complex, which includes a palladium atom surrounded by three hydrides and three magnesium atoms. The work here was to verify that the, the work here was to verify the previously completed work at Imperial College using spectroscopy, X-ray crystallography, and theoretical calculations, which were able to elucidate the theorized geometries of the structure of the metals. My colleague Mark Crimmin has carefully verified this novel coordination geometry by probing how the different ligands act to stabilize this remarkable and previously unobserved arrangement. He proposes that the alternating sigma donors and sigma acceptors give rise to an electronically favorable arrangement, notes Edwards. Now, ligands are an ion or molecule which bonds to the central metal atom to form a coordination complex with a specific kind of, geomet of geometric configuration. Sigma donor and sigma acceptors are kinds of molecular bonds in which the ligands are attached to those central metal atoms. Generally, such complexes have six bonds, but one of the new geometries, the one with the nickel hydride, features seven bonds or ligands. Now, again, this is a very simplified version of the interactions between the molecules in this in these transitional metals, um, but we definitely don't have time for a whole lesson on inorganic chemistry tonight, um, and I would have to um, spend a lot of time um, brushing up myself on some of the more seriously complex bits. And so that's pretty much what it is, is that they found novel geometries in which the atoms are arranged in these uh, kinds of materials that are called um, transitional metals. And so transitional metals are then used in a bunch of uh, different applications. So um, the reason that I thought this was really cool is because, again, this is another uh, story where something was proposed many years ago and now has been experimentally proven. So again, it's that nice sort of real solid science kind of thing where you have a hypothesis and then you go out there and somebody actually measures or does an experiment and finds experimentally that this is actually the case as far as we can tell uh, at this moment. And that's definitely one of my favorite kinds of stories. Um, though there is obviously a caveat, it, even in this case, the koala um, was only able to observe the geometry of the nickel complex and not the palladium complex because it didn't survive the trip to Australia for testing. Now, again, this is another 
uh, story where it has implications for fu- for further research and especially in materials design. So these are definitely very much um, about the sort of uh, new materials that might be developed in the future. So it's a very neat result. Okay, so let us uh, take a break and do some PSAs and some show promos, and we're going to move on. We're actually going to stay in the realm of molecular geometry, uh, but we're definitely going to shift, and it's going to make a little bit more sense. It's going to be a little bit easier to understand. So do hang on. Um, I am going to be moving on to things that are a little less theoretical and uh, <laughs> and hard to wrap one's brain around. So hang on for just a minute. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance, with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We love all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes and sound sculptures. Arts Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2am Sunday morning. Check us out. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Fresh Sounds with your host, Ron Freshly, Tuesdays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on WXOJLP, bringing you the music of Bud Powell, Wardell Gray, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Abby Lincoln, Tad Dameron, Yusef Latif, Bix Beiderbeck, Cassandra Wilson, Tom Harrell, Jane Ira Bloom, and thousands more. Never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Aquí habla Marta Martínez, acupunturista de Stay in Touch. Está oyendo a Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton. Hi, I'm Mark Sherry. I'm Ed Malachowski. And I'm Ace Housethor, and we're some of the hosts for the New Music Alliance Radio Hour, which goes up every Thursday from 6 to 7 p.m. We're going to focus on presenting some of the best original music to come from the Western New England area, both past and present. 
In addition to myself and Ace and Mark, we have Mark Beauvais, David Sokol, and Betsy Cordes for the ride. And as always, keep keep on rocking. This is Ruthie from Pedal People with a public service announcement. If you frequent downtown Northampton or Florence and you pass by the recycling and trash bins on the street, the public ones, I'm here to let you know that cups are not recyclable. No plastic cups, no paper cups, no styrofoam cups, no clear cups, red cups, blue cups, yellow cups, no insulated cups. Because if you put cups in the recycling bin, it means either I pick them out or someone at the sorting facility picks them out in Springfield, or it contaminates the whole load too much that the whole load is considered trash. Or if you can just bring your own cup all together and not have disposable cups, that'd be even better. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your cooperation. Okay, we are back. And so, like I said, we are going to stay in the realm of uh, molecular geometry, but it's going to be a little less rough. So a new paper from researchers at the University of Manchester has proposed a new theory for why some volcanic eruptions are more explosive than others. Now, the most common form of volcanic eruption involves relatively tame magma, and uh, the majority of them are characterized by basaltic materials. So they're made of um, magma that is melted basalts. And so every once in a while, though, a basaltic eruption can be highly explosive and dangerous. These are called Plinian eruptions <laughs> after the ancient Roman writer Pliny the Elder, who recorded the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 CE. Um, and I feel like we've talked about Mount Vesuvius recently, too. Uh, but anyways, the paper, which is published in the journal Nature Geoscience, suggests that rapid cooling as magma is expelled from a volcano can lead to a rapid formation of crystals, which in turn increases the viscosity of the magma. And this produces magma fragmentation, which creates a highly explosive eruption. Dr. Fabio Arzilli and his colleagues, including partners at the Oxfordshire-based Diamond Light Source, discovered this process by using both numerical modeling as well as in-situ and ex-situ experiments. And so basically, experiments with actual magma in actual volcanic situations and um, experiments in the lab. Additionally, they observed natural samples from previous high-explosive eruptions, such as the 1886 Tarawera eruption uh, from New Zealand. Dr. Arzilli said, We found that under certain conditions consistent with highly explosive eruptions, crystallization can occur within a couple of minutes during magma ascent. Now, until this study, volcanologists had believed that crystallization occurred too slowly in order to be responsible for such explosive eruptions. However, Dr. Arzilli notes that our results imply that all basaltic systems on Earth have the potential to produce powerful explosive eruptions. This has important implications for the volcanic hazard and risk on not only the regional but also the global scale. <laughs> 
Indeed, Icelandic eruptions are recognized as one of the highest priority risks in the National Risk Register of Civil Emergencies for the UK population. And so that is a problem, obviously. Um, We've actually had that happen in our lifetime where um, there's been a volcanic eruption in Iceland and people were not able to fly um, for a couple of days because there was just so much um, ash in the um, atmosphere. But also, you know, when these are highly volatile uh, eruptions, it's even worse because you have a much more uh, dynamic system wherein usually they're pretty um, straightforwardly um, explosive. But this is basically uh, next level explosive. (laughs) And um, so it's really interesting because, of course, basalts do have crystalline structures. And so basically when you have a change in the viscosity, if it becomes... Um, more viscous, it's able to then move for move faster, and therefore you can have um, explosive results. So definitely a uh, scary result, but everything we learn about uh, volcanoes is important because the more we learn about volcanoes, the more we are able to actually figure out what's going on with them. And then hopefully we'll begin to be able to monitor them better and even possibly predict them, hopefully, maybe. (laughs) Um, And so uh, we're talking about viscosity. So let us move on now and talk about oobleck. Now, we talked about slime molds last week. Uh, Oobleck is another uh, favorite of mine. Um, It's a great parlor trick. And um, so I'm sure that most people have had an experience with the substance. Uh, You might not have heard of it referred to as oobleck, but basically it's a mixture of cornstarch and water that forms what's called a non-Newtonian fluid. And so when moving slowly, it acts like a liquid, but if you try to hit it or move it quickly, it acts like a solid. Now, oobleck actually, uh, as a name, comes from the Dr. Seuss story, Bartholomew and the oobleck. And so researchers have now created a 3D computer model that can predict the behavior of the substance, which one hopes will lead to more serious uses of the substance beyond the usual kids science class or party trick, though it's a great party trick for uh, a Halloween party, a little bit of oobleck with some uh, um, food coloring in it. It's a great time. I've definitely done it at parties with adults. Adults love it just as much as kids. (laughs) There may be ways to use this material in ways we haven't thought about yet, where you can design it to turn into solid-like behavior under very, very specific circumstances, said study leader Ken Cameron, a mechanical engineer at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. One suggestion from Cameron is productive clothing that could be flexible and less hit hard, which would stiffen it and then help and thus help spread out the impact in a sort of shield like um, property. Now, non-Newtonian fluids change viscosity or how easily they flow under stress. It really is like a liquid if you move it slowly, but it does everything you expect of a solid if you play with it quickly, Cameron said. 
His team usually focus on the flow of sand, gravel, and other industrial materials. But after seeing a scientific talk on Ublek's properties, Cameron and his colleagues began uh, what they termed a lively discussion <laughs> about how the substance differs from other wet granular materials. Um, I think that might have been a very interesting conversation to have had a chance to be a part of, but... Um, Unfortunately, we'll just have to have fun with Ublek itself. Now, the thing about cornstarch is that it has tiny particles, generally between 1 and 10 microns in size. And so at this range, the particles are susceptible to tiny thermal and electrical forces. And when in water, they actually repel each other slightly. And so these are though forces that are too weak to affect larger materials such as sand. And in fact, this repulsive force helps the slurry flow when moving slowly because they actually prefer a layer of fluid between them. But when squeezed, friction takes over and the particles move like a solid. The team began with a computer model of wet sand and made adjustments to better model wet cornstarch. So basically, dialing down the size of the particles and adjusting the uh, physics for how those smaller particles will work. And so one of the key factors was to add a variable to predict how many grains of cornstarch were touching one another in a given region of the fluid. This clumpiness factor, so-called, allows the model to determine how solid or liquid-like the substance will be. The model can now be used to test Ublek's reaction to scenarios like being squeezed between two plates or being hit with a projectile. The researchers also designed a model with a virtual wheel, which ran over a tank of Ublek. They found that the faster the wheel turned, the firmer the surface became. This suggests, for instance, that bags of Ublek or a material similar to it could be used to temporarily fill potholes on a road with a high enough speed limit. And now that the model exists, researchers can use it to develop a variety of potential uses for this weird but wonderful substance. <laughs> okay, let us move on now and talk about lithium batteries. They are both the sort of cornerstone of a lot of our technologies and a pain in the butt um, for all sorts of uh people trying to design uh, new electronics because while they are really awesome in some ways, they're really just problematic in other ways. <laughs> and so again, these batteries have become kind of a cornerstone of modern technology, but they have potential failing points, even to the point where, as I'm sure you've heard over the last few years in the news, they occasionally catch fire and hurt people and nobody wants that. <laughs> And so we actually know why that happens, though. Um, it is caused by the development of dendrites and whiskers, which are needle-like structures that form in the electrolyte, which is the liquid material that allows for the battery's chemical reactions to take place. Now, these dendrites and whiskers can pierce a structure known as the separator inside of a battery and can increase unwanted reactions between the electrolyte and the lithium, speeding up battery failure. And so the team, led by Changmin Wang 
at the Department of Energy's Pacific Northwest National Laboratory has shown that certain compounds within the electrolyte prompt the growth of dendrites. So dendrites are tiny, rigid, tree-like structures uh, with those needles, uh, needle-like projections that are called whiskers. And so they hope that the find will allow them to manipulate the battery's electrolyte ingredients to stop the growth of these harmful structures, which have been holding back the widespread adoption of lithium metal batteries, which have a higher energy density than the more commonly used lithium ion batteries. They found that the origin of the whiskers in a lithium metal battery lies in a structure known as the SEI, or solid electrolyte interface, which is a film where the solid lithium surface of the anode meets the liquid electrolyte. They found specifically that ethylene carbonate, a seemingly indispensable solvent which is added to enhance battery performance, actually is the cause of this um, growth. Now, a dendrite forms when lithium ions start to clump or nucleate on the surface of the anode, which then slowly grows as more and more lithium atoms are attracted to the nucleus in a manner similar to the way that a stalagmite grows from the floor of a cave or um, the way that a icicle grows. Now, the energy dynamics on the surface of the SEI actually push lithium ions toward the growing column until a whisker erupts from the structure. Now, in order to capture this process in action, the scientists had to integrate, integrate two different kinds of viewing, an atomic force microscope, or an AFM, and an environmental transmission electron microscope, which is a unique instrument that allows researchers to study an operating battery under real conditions. Now, AFMs are really cool. I actually went to a uh, SciTech Cafe um, lecture about uh, the use of AFMs a couple of years ago. So an atomic force um, microscope it's not a microscope in the way that you would think of um, with a normal sort of you look into it and it magnifies things. The way that an AFM works is that it actually has a cantilevered arm and that arm has a little tip on the end. And so what they do is they run the tip over the substance and it pushes against the substance being measured in order to register the force exerted against the tip. So it's almost kind of like um, a blind person reading, reading Braille. So they would run their fingertip across the surface and pushing down slightly. And so that you're reading the um, force pushing back up against that cantilevered arm uh, against the tip. And so it's actually really interesting. And again, that's very simplified. <laughs> um, and so they found a direct correlation between the level of ethylene carbonate and the growth of dendrites and whiskers. They found that the addition of cyclohexanon prevented the growth of the harm harmful substances. However, we don't want to simply suppress the growth of dendrites. We want to get to the root cause and eliminate them, said Wang, a corresponding author of the paper along with Wu Xu. We drew upon the expertise of our colleagues who have expertise in electrochemistry. My hope is that our findings will spur the community to look at this problem in, a new, in new ways. Clearly, more research is needed.
And so understanding how they start and grow could hopefully lead to new ideas for eliminating them, or at least controlling them and minimizing damage, suggests first, first author Yang He. And so they looked at how whiskers respond to an obstacle, either buckling, yielding, kinking, or stopping. They hope that understanding this process will lead to the ability for greater adoption of lithium metal batteries for use in things like electric cars, laptops, mobile phones, and other electronics. Which again, the big uh, selling point there is that uh, they hold a charge better is basically what it is. And so you could get a longer charge time on a lithium metal battery than you can on a um, lithium ion battery. And so they're kind of the, the next generation battery waiting in the wings <laughs> for uh, somebody to come along and uh, figure out how we can get to there. So, um, finally tonight, uh, I think this is all we're going to have time for. Uh, I want to talk about something that's pretty much fresh off the, off the, uh, printing. So, um, definitely more to talk about in the future, but, um, oh, that reminds me, I did look to see if there was any more information about, um, the Zahi Hawass, um, announcement about, um, the Egyptian um, uh, sarcophagi that were found. And there wasn't any real new information. It was just basically a uh, photo op more than anything for people to be able to see them um, and take better pictures of them. So there wasn't any real new information. Um, if there is any new information in future, I'll probably talk about it because, um, you know, Egypt is a eternally um, <laughs> um, interesting topic. Let's get back to uh, tonight. So new research uh, published in Science Today describes thousands of new mammal, reptile, and plant fossils that have been excavated from the Coral Bluff site in the Denver Basin of, Col of Central Colorado. And so this is a huge blockbuster story. Um, so you may have already seen it today, but I'm just going to uh, give a brief run through. So the fossils represent species that lived and thrived for about a million year span after the famous uh, Cretaceous-Paleogene extinction. Now, when I was growing up, it was called the KT boundary, um, but it's now called the KPGE boundary. <laughs> um, and this marks the end of the dominance of non-avian dinosaurs. Um, and I'm going to talk about dinosaurs again um, through here, and I don't bother saying non-avian. So just as a quick reminder, uh, avian dinosaurs survived. They became birds. Um, all the rest of the dinosaurs, they died out shortly after um, the impact at uh, Chitsalub. So um, it, this marks the end of the dominance of those dinosaurs and the rise of mammals, uh, which then quickly evolved to fill the niches left open by the demise of those dinosaurs, which again were wiped out by a variety of environmental pressures, not the least of which was that asteroid that hit the Yucatan Peninsula. And so Tyler Lyson, the lead author of the new study and a paleontologist from the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, decided to take a new approach to looking at fossil remains recovered at Coral Bluffs back in 2016. 
He decided to study the concretions, the type of rock that forms around bones and other bits of organic material. I saw this ugly, white-colored, amorphous blob that looked like a loaf of bread, said Lyson at a press conference this week. I used my rock hammer to crack it open, and I could suddenly see the cross-section of a mammal skull staring back at me. He immediately alerted his team and his colleague, Ian Miller, a paleobotanist from the Denver Museum and a co-author of the study, followed suit. This soon led to more and more finds until they realized they'd found an entire horde. It was pure elation, said Lyson. It all happened so quickly. You don't have discovery moments like this in paleontology very often. And so they ended up with well over 1,000 vertebrate fossils and 233 distinct fossilized plant, plants and plant materials, such as spores, along with an assortment of other organisms. This included a stunning 16 new species of mammals, several of which they haven't even had time to describe yet. And so not only is this a remarkable find in and of itself, but fossils from this period have previously been considered extremely rare. To find such a concentrated set of finds is truly remarkable. Previous to this uh, discovery, the remains of animals and other organisms from the recovery period following the mass extinction have been both poor and fragmentary. So there was no way to piece together how they fit um, on any kind of timeline. And so this uninterrupted sequence will have lasting effects on our understanding of this time period. Now they were able to map out the evolutionary expansion of these organisms and found three critical stages of post-extinction recovery. What was amazing to them was the speed at which mammals evolved and diversified to fill in the niches left by the dinosaurs. The number of mammalian species doubled around 100,000 years after the impact event. By this time, they reached the maximum body size seen in the late Cretaceous, um, around the size of rats or raccoons, no more than around 18 pounds. But um, the late Cretaceous was where they had been right before the impact. Um, they subsided primarily on the carbon-rich detritus left over from the mass extinction. Around 300,000 years post-KPGE, ferns began to take over terrestrial landscapes, and this allowed for larger body sizes, with mammals reaching the size of pigs up to 55 pounds. Plants are the basis of terrestrial ecosystems, ecosystems, said Miller during a press conference, these mammals were responding to new kinds of plants on the landscape. By 700,000 years ago, after the impact, they had obtained the size of modern wolves between 77 and 110 pounds. This coincided with the emergence of legumes and perhaps walnuts, which are calorie-rich foods that could power larger animals. Lyson says he'd now like to get a better sense of the ecosystems in which each animal lived and how they fit together into the larger evolutionary tree of life, while Miller says he'd like to work on finding more evidence of legumes and walnuts in order to bolster the hypothesis that the two evolved together. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight. I want you to uh, have a great week, and I will be back next week with more science and skepticism. 
Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.